Hello, my gardening friends, and welcome back to the Just Grow Something podcast. Whether you are a first-year gardener or you have been gardening you practically your entire life, um, you may have thought about saving seeds from your garden. Or maybe you've saved seeds in the past and you've had some problem with viability or germination the next season. I mean, it doesn't sound like it should be a difficult task, right? Just collect the seeds from whatever you want to keep, rinse them, dry them, and pack them away for next year, right? Well, sure. And while following this simple method can absolutely mean you'll have beautifully preserved seeds that have fantastic germination the next season and yield a bounty of exactly what you thought you were planting, it's equally possible that you'll end up opening the seed packet the next season to find fuzzy gray fungus or black moldy growth on your seeds. Or you might have nice looking seeds that don't sprout properly. Or maybe they do sprout and you get midway through the gardening season and the fruit on the plant look nothing like the ones you save the seeds from. What seems like it should be a straightforward process actually requires a little finesse. So this Garden Talk Tuesday, I'm going to dig into which plants you should and shouldn't be saving seeds from, how to properly collect, clean, and dry those seeds in order to best guarantee your success next season, and what to do with certain seeds to hedge your bets against carrying disease over from one season to the other. Let's dig in, shall we? Hey, I'm Karen, and together with my husband, I spent over a decade researching and learning and building our small farm through lots of trial and error, successes and failures. I went back to school to get my degree in horticulture to help our farm business, and now I want to pass all that knowledge on to you. Because I firmly believe that self-reliance is empowering, and that everyone, whether you've got a five-acre plot in the country, a half-acre lot in suburbia, or a windowless room in a downtown apartment, should just grow something. So first things first, which plants should you be saving your seeds from? There are several things to consider when choosing plants and which plants and which varieties you'll save the seed from to propagate for the next season. So the first thing is to, it's important to know that you should start with open pollinated seeds. So open pollinated varieties rather than hybrids. If open pollinated varieties self-pollinate or cross-pollinate with other plants of the same variety, then they set seed that grows into plants that are still very similar to the parent plant, and they're going to bear fruit that are very similar to the parent fruit. You open pollinated varieties may be heirlooms, right? Those varieties that have been passed down through generations and have remained relatively unchanged. If they've been around for longer than 50 years, they're considered an heirloom. So sometimes the term open pollinated and heirloom are used interchangeably, but just know that the only difference is literally how long the variety has been recognized. They all will reproduce true to type if properly pollinated, either by self-pollinating like most tomatoes or by cross-pollinating with another plant of the same variety like plants in the curcubit family. So open pollinated tomato types, for example. You're looking at Cherokee Purple, uh, San Marzano, Brandywine. Any of seeds that are produced by those varieties are going to grow into plants that are very similar to the plant that you took the fruit from, which nearly identical fruit. 
Um, you've got the same thing in peppers, things like habanero, California wonder, uh, corno de toro. Those are a generic sort of um, bull's horn pepper. Lincoln, Little Marvel, and Perfection. Those are all open-pollinated pea varieties. And then when you get into green beans, you're looking at Kentucky Wonder, Blue Lake, Tender Crop. Those are all open-pollinated varieties that will grow true from saved seed. Now, because cross-pollination with another variety of the same plant species will still produce viable seeds, you'll need to take a little care and planning in your garden in order to guarantee the seeds you produce will be true to type. So plants that have separate male and female flowers, like corn, for example, or any of the squashes, the melons, the cucumbers, etc., they can all cross-pollinate. It's really difficult to, to keep the seed strain pure if you're growing more than one type of these crop or more than one variety of these crops in your garden. So for example, if you're growing popcorn, but then you're also growing sweet corn. Well, a popcorn variety can pollinate a stand of sweet corn on a windy day if they're planted too closely together or if they've been timed to grow where they're tasseling at the same time. So if they cross-pollinate, this is going to affect the flavor of your sweet corn crop. And then if you save those seeds, a crop grown from those seeds is not going to be a really good sweet corn, and it's also not going to be a really good popcorn because it's going to have traits of both. So we've talked before about the problems we can see in our cucumber or in our zucchini plants if they aren't properly pollinated in the garden, right? You get those shrunken or curled ends or basically a complete failure to grow out on the plant. So we know insects are responsible for pollinating our cucumbers, our melons, our squashes, and our pumpkins. We've also talked about the myth of cross-pollination affecting the current year fruits of those crops. But that same cross-pollination that we rely on to produce this year's crop is also what may prevent any saved seeds from producing the fruit we expect or even any fruit at all the next season. So even though cross-pollination is not going to affect the quality of your current crop, seeds from any one of those crosses is going to grow into vines with fruit that is not like the parent plants. So for example, there are both melons and cucumbers that fall into the species Cucumis milo. So if you plant these too closely together in the garden, insects may bring pollen from one to another cross-pollinating them. You'll get the cucumbers and the melons that you expect this year. But if you save those seeds and grow them next year, you'll be growing a hybrid. Now, hybrid plants, those are the products of crosses between two or more varieties of the same species. And so that's combining the traits of the parent plants. Now, sometimes these pollen, these uh, combinations are really good. So you're going to get plants that grow really well and they have some disease resistance and they're really productive. These are the plants that we typically see crossed and developed intentionally for those traits. It's not just happenstance in the garden. Hybrid seeds that we buy for that reason um, are generally more expensive because they cost more to produce and the plants may produce better as a result. Now, it's not to say that an accidental cross in the garden hasn't produced beautiful hybrids. It's just to say that you won't know what you're going to get 
if you save the seeds from a random garden hybridization. So hybrid plants in tomatoes, like Big Boy, Beef Master, Early Girl, they're all hybrids and they will produce viable seeds. You could save those seeds and you could plant them and you can grow them the following year and they're going to grow. But if you save those seeds, the plants grown from those seed are not identical to the parent plant because that parent plant was a hybrid. They will be a completely new combination of both the good and the bad traits of the plants from the initial cross. It's impossible to predict just how the seedling plant is going to perform or what qualities the fruit might have. It may revert back to the more dominant traits from one or more of the original source plants, or it may revert to the most undesirable traits. Um, Genetics are fun and funny that way. This is why we don't save the seeds from hybrid plants that we buy in the store or that we start ourselves from purchased seeds that say on the packet that they are an F1 hybrid. I mean, you certainly can, right? And it's a fun experiment. If you have the room in your garden and you want to mess around with that, by all means, go ahead. It's kind of fun to see what you'll get. It's just certainly not what you want to aim for if you're saving seeds specifically to continue your gardening journey. So when in doubt, if you plan to save seeds, then be sure to space your plants that are in the same species far enough away from each other that there's very little chance of them crossing. Remember, a species is a group of individuals that are all able to reproduce together. Now, there are several species of squash, and there are actually two distinct species of kale. So that means that some varieties of these crops are not able to cross-pollinate with each other. So it's important to look at the names on the packets. Like I said, Cucumis milo, it's commonly categorized as a melon, but it also contains varieties that are considered cucumbers, and those can cross. So always pay attention to that scientific species name on the packet when you're planning out your garden spacing. But again, it is only important if you plan to save those seeds. It is not going to affect your current year's crop. Now, something else that you're going to want to consider when you're thinking about saving seeds and which plants you think you want to save the seeds from is whether or not those plants are annuals or or biennials. Um, You know, plants that flower, set seed, and then die all in a single growing season, things like our lettuce, tomatoes, bell peppers, those are all annuals. Biannuals, like our carrots and our onions, may be harvested usually in their first season. They don't flower until their second growing season after they've gone through a cold period. And then, of course, you also have, you know, longer lived plants like fruiting trees and plants like asparagus and rhubarb. Those are all perennials. They survive and they flower for many, many years. Generally, we're not saving seeds from those. We're propagating those in other manners. So, If you're planning to save seed from an annual, it's actually pretty straightforward. If it's a fruiting type of plant, then you wait until you have a beautiful specimen on a very healthy plant. Now, don't use the really pretty tomatoes in your dishes and then save the seeds from the puny little fruits. All you're doing at that point is perpetuating the genes of a puny fruit. You want to perpetuate the genes of the biggest and the best in your garden, So you can get the biggest and the best the next season. Now, if the plant that you want to save seed from is a legume, like a pea or a bean, 
You'll likely want to pick a few of the best looking plants at the very beginning and sort of mark them as your seed producers. You won't want to pick from these plants, so just plan ahead to be sure that you plant enough for a full crop this year for eating and preserving, and then enough to save the seed from them for the next season. If the plant that you want to save seed from is a dry seed, like lettuce or most of your herbs, um, these are the kinds that produce a flower that sets seed, not fruit, then realize that you may or may not be harvesting anything from those plants and you may only be harvesting for a short period of time and then allowing them to go to seed so you can collect them. So again, here, if you want to make sure that you have enough, say, basil is an easy one. If you're working with basil, you can harvest off of it for most of the season and then at the very end of the season, sort of ignore it and let it go ahead and go to seed. Uh, same thing with... Um, Oh, things like dill. Um, a lot of your herbs are like this. But if you're wanting to do, say, lettuce seeds, then you're going to want to select a group of lettuce plants that you just leave alone and allow them to go ahead and grow up and go to seed and then go ahead and harvest off of all of your other ones. You can sometimes do the cut and come again method with lettuce where you harvest off of it for a little while and then once it starts to get warm and you know that that plant is going to bolt, then you go ahead and let it bolt, let it flower, and you can collect the seed at that point. Now, if the plant that you want to perpetuate is a biennial, that makes the planting a little bit more important. Um, your carrots, beets, onions, uh, parsley, those things that don't set seed into their sec until their second year are going to need some extra care there. And depending on your climate, you may not be able to grow those long enough to collect the seed. Um, if you live in an area that gets extreme cold and gets really hard frozen ground in the winter, you might not be able to leave root crops in the ground at the end of the season and then have them survive to come back up again the next year, in which case you're not going to be able to get any seed from them. So, you know, you know at that point that that's just something that you may end up having to perpetually buy seeds. Um, but if you are in a more temperate climate where these things can overwinter, then you'll need to plan for it. So either plant a bed specifically for seed saving or mark the ones in the partial rows that you intend to winter over just so they don't get harvested by mistake. Um, and if you do get inclement weather over the winter, then just be sure that you have the plot mapped out on your garden plan or otherwise mark the bed so that you know what's happening in the spring when you're out there working your gardens. Um, and then you'll need to allow those plants to begin their growth again in the spring, let them go to flower, let them set seed, and then probably protect those seeds a little bit from the wildlife and the weather, and then go ahead and do your collecting. So this is why for beginning seed savers, I just recommend starting with some pretty easy crops. Um, things that are the easiest to save seed from are things like peas and beans. Uh, lettuce is actually surprisingly easy because it does bolt so readily in hot weather. Um, tomatoes and peppers. Those are all great for gardeners that are just starting out with learning how to save seeds. They're annuals. They're mostly self-pollinating. Um, they really require little to no isolation, and you really only need a few plants to reliably produce enough seed. Now, for a couple of those that can cross-pollinate by insect activity, like your peas and your lettuces, 
All you have to do is give them a little bit of space between the varieties and you should be just fine. Once you get into the more advanced seed saving that requires isolation between the varieties, you're also looking at other advanced methods like uh, pollination barriers and hand pollination and much larger isolation distances. So those are subjects for another day. We're just going to focus on the easy stuff to start with. So you've got two different sort of types of crops that you save seed from. And I've sort of mentioned this already. You've got crops that set wet fruits um, and then you have your dry seeded crops. So crops that produce fruit, wet fruit, um, the seeds are not always mature when we actually usually eat the crop. So eggplant, cucumber, all of our summer squashes. These fruits are all eaten when the fruits are actually immature. So the seeds in the inside are actually not mature at this stage. So if you're planning to save seeds, you actually need to leave fruits to be fully mature um, if you want to save those seeds. They have to be fat. They have to be plump. They have to be mature. A lot of the time, this means leaving those baseball bat-sized zucchini sitting out there until they get a nice hard shell on them. With cucumbers, they tend to get large and fat, and then they'll just start to turn yellow. So before the point where they start to rot, um, but maybe at the point where they've sort of got it a little wrinkled. Now your dry-seeded crops, any of your grains, your lettuces, um, beans, herbs, other plants that go to seed without an actual fruit, all of those can be removed from the plant once the seeds are dry and hard. So Again, you're not going to harvest like the beans and the peas at the same time that you would normally want them for fresh eating. We pick those while they're immature. If you want them for seed saving, you have to leave them on the plant, let them dry, let them be totally dry and like rattling around in their little pods before you pick them off. Same thing goes with any of the herbs, um, any of the uh, the lettuces and things that are sending these um you know, it because they have to stay out there until they are dry. If you pick them too early, there is no way to dry them indoors because they are not mature until they are fully dry. But once they are fully dry on the plant, you just knock off the dust and the dirt and you're pretty much set. I mean, so long as they are actually dry. Now, if you're saving seeds from the wet fruited crops, you harvest the fruits and then you either crush them or you open them up. And you're going to pull those seeds out from the flesh and you're going to pull the pulp with it um, and then you have to dry them, right? This includes all of your tomatoes um, and your curcubits, your, your peppers. Here's the thing about tomato seeds and all of the curcubits. A lot of the time, they're sort of slimy when you pull them out, right? Now, if you've ever say done pumpkins, you know, and you're pulling, you're, you're gutting the pumpkins to carve jack-o'-lanterns and you want to save those seeds to be able to roasted pumpkin seeds. They're kind of slimy. And really when you're doing roasted pumpkin seeds, all you're worried about is getting them toasted. So you're rinsing them off as best you can and you're tossing them in your seasonings and you're roasting them off in the oven. Well, obviously you're not going to be roasting your seeds that you're saving to plant for the next year. Um, but you do need to get all of that stuff off of those seeds. Same thing goes with your tomato seeds. Um, if you don't get that stuff, 
um, off of the seeds, it is going to be more likely that you develop a mold problem in your seeds while they are in storage. And there is nothing more disappointing than having saved all these seeds and then opening them up only to find that they've gone bad or they have mold and, uh, and there's nothing you can do to salvage them at that point. So with tomatoes specifically, but also with your curcubits, allow those fruit to ripen fully on the vine just to the point where um, they start to get a little bit wrinkly and then scoop out the seeds along with the gel or whatever that is surrounding them. Um, and then you're going to put them, you're going to rinse them as best you can to get rid of all the extra sort of pulp and stuff and then put the seeds um, in a glass jar with some water. Um, make sure there's some room between the seeds and they're floating around in there and then just stir or swirl that jar around about twice a day. If you're doing a small amount of them, the easiest thing is to just put them by your kitchen sink. Don't put them in direct sunlight, um, but just someplace where you're going to see them pretty frequently. And that way you can just sort of swirl them around. Or if there's any other place in your kitchen that, you know, you pass by pretty frequently, what you're going to see is fermentation. This mixture is going to start to bubble a little bit on the top. Um, just let it do that. Continue to swirl it. And then you should start to see after about three to five days or so, the seeds are going to start to sink to the bottom of the jar. When this happens, go ahead and pour off the liquid. I just use a, a wire mesh colander. I just dump the whole shebang in there. And then I rinse the seeds really good. And then spread them out on a paper towel um, to dry. Now, if at this point when you pour them out, you still feel like they're sort of slimy, go ahead and ferment them again. You're getting all of that stuff off of there. It's essentially, you know, any bacteria or anything else is cooking off, not cooking off, it's fermenting off. Um, and it's going to make these seeds more viable for saving. Have I done it? before where I've not fermented seeds and I've saved them and gotten viable resorts. Oh yeah, absolutely. I didn't even realize this was a thing until not that long ago. Um, and there are still times when I just, I haven't done it because I just haven't had the time. I had too many seeds to save, whatever the case may be. Um, I've gotten lucky in most instances that I haven't had any problems, but that's not to say that I just literally haven't gotten lucky. So um, from here on out, yeah, absolutely, as I'm saving my seeds, the tomatoes and any one of the curcubits, the cucumbers, zucchini, yellow squash, winter squashes, all those guys are all getting fermented just to be on the safe side because you really don't want to go through all this work of saving the seeds and tucking them away only to have them not be viable when you go to plant them in the spring. I'd like to thank my patrons over on Patreon for supporting this and every episode of this podcast. Patrons of this show get access to exclusive content on the Patreon page, bonus hotshot episodes, monthly live Q&A sessions with me, Just Grow Something merchandise, and more. But above all, they get my undying gratitude for helping make this podcast possible and helping me reach for bigger goals like stipends for guests, improved software and equipment, bonus content, and more. If you'd like to support the show by becoming a patron and also receive my undying gratitude, head over to patreon.com slash just grow something or use the link in the show notes. So what about pepper seeds? Um, peppers are really easy. You actually don't have to worry about fermenting those. Um, just allow some of those fruits to stay on the plants until they become fully ripe and they start to wrinkle. And keep in mind with peppers, even though we may pick them green, 
that doesn't mean that they're ripe. Um, a lot of the time, bell peppers and especially um, hot peppers, they actually are red or orange or yellow or whatever when they are at their mature stage. So let them go fully ripe and start to sort of cave in on themselves um, before you pick them to use them for uh, for seed saving. And the peppers are super easy. You're literally just scraping them out from inside of the pepper. I always like to rinse them just to make sure there's no additional residue or anything left on them and then spread them out to dry. Now with your peas and your beans, same thing. You have to allow the pods to ripen on the plants until they are dry and they're starting to turn brown. The seeds should be rattling around inside. This may be as long as a month after you would normally harvest them to eat, so be patient. And this is another time when you may actually have to protect them if you've got wildlife out there that may want to eat them while you're waiting for them to dry. Um, be patient. Once they're sort of rattling around in their pods, go ahead and take the pods off of the plants and bring them indoors. Uh, don't open them yet. Spread them out and make sure that they are completely dry. This could take... Uh, at least another two weeks or so. And oftentimes you actually don't even have to worry about shelling them in order to store them. You can store them in the pods if you don't have a huge amount of them. I've actually done this with okra. Um, I left it out there on the plants and let them dry completely on the plants. and Well, not completely, almost completely on the plants. And then I brought them in and let them finish drying um, on a on a cookie sheet, on paper towels, on a cookie sheet, and uh, and then I stored them in a plastic bin. They actually ended up drying to the point where they popped open, and the seeds were um, released on their own in a lot of them. Um, so there's nothing that says you can't do that with beans or peas if it's easier for you. Otherwise, go ahead and and shell them and uh, and let them um, and store them up that way. Now, I will talk um, in a different episode about how to make sure your seeds are all dried correctly. Um, that'll be Friday's episode. I'll also talk about the proper storage conditions, what to store them in, how long they can be stored, etc. But that's a lot more information that we need to dive into. And but that's a lot more information that we need to dig into, and I don't want to make this episode too long, so I decided to sort of uh, break it up between two episodes. But one last point that I want to talk about before finishing this one is talking about um, preventing disease. Okay, The adage is healthy seeds make healthy plants, and there are instances when diseased plants can actually pass on diseases within or on the seeds that we save, which that can lead to, of course, poor quality plants again the next season. It can also perpetuate disease in your garden because the infection cycle in each planting starts really early in the season, and then you continue to save those and planting infected seeds again, and that's just promoting the buildup of the disease in your garden. So, um, you know, a bacteria can be attached to the outside of the seed coat or it can be carried within the seed and you would never know. Fortunately, you know, you can prevent passing on diseases by treating your seed with a bleach solution or with a hot water treatment before planting. Um, you know, a chlorine bleach treatment can eliminate certain pathogens from the surface of the seed. Um, a hot water treatment can eliminate or reduce seed-borne fungi and bacteria, but not viruses. Um, in the hot water 
treatment, it's really important to pay attention to the ratio of the solution and the temperature and the recommended time in the solution when treating the seed. Um, because if you don't do it correctly, you can actually damage the seed, which of course is going to reduce the viability of the seed being able to produce the next season. Um, the problem is infected transplants and seeds don't usually show any obvious symptoms of infection until much later on. So really it is start with disease-free plants if you possibly can. Um, in our area, it's difficult to grow a completely disease-free tomato in the garden, just outdoors. There are just so many fungal and bacterial pathogens that you know, infect our garden tomatoes out here. Now, I've never had a problem with passing on disease in seeds because the types of diseases that plague our tomatoes, like early blight, for example, um, are passed on through the wind or through soil contamination. So it's not something that is usually passed on through the seed. But in some areas, things like a bacterial canker are a big problem in tomatoes, and that can be passed on by seed. So Part of the importance is knowing what's a problem in your area and learn the signs and then just choose healthy fruit from healthy plants whenever it is possible. But what if your prized heirloom beans from your great-grandmother's garden are diseased and you need to save those seeds? Okay, like I said, you have two options. The first one is a bleach treatment. So once you have collected your seeds and you've properly dried them down and you're ready to get them ready for storage, you make a solution, which is one part bleach and four parts of water, and then add a few drops of dish soap to this. You put the seeds into the solution and you allow it to sit for about a minute, just kind of swirling it around occasionally. There should be a few enough seeds in there that they're able to kind of float freely around and so that all the surfaces come in contact with the bleach solution. Once they've had about a minute in the solution, pour it through, you know, a, a mesh sieve or a cheesecloth and then rinse the seeds in cool tap water um, under running water for about five minutes. And then at this point, the seed can be thoroughly dried and then stored. Um... Bleach seed treatment can be used on any kind of seed, including tomatoes. It will remove pathogens from the surface of the seed coat, but not from within the seed. And unfortunately, um, this means for bacterial canker, bleach treatment only partially reduces the risk of infection from contaminated seed. So that is where a hot water treatment comes in. Um... Like I mentioned, the, the difficulty with hot water treatment is that the time and the temperatures of the treatment is going to vary for each seed type. So I'm going to link in the show notes to a table um, with the information about the hot water treatment from Louisiana State University. They also have several how-to videos available. Um, this is you know, really to be used if you know that you have certain diseases that can be passed on in diseased fruit and you are really desperate to save those uh, those seeds. It is really critical with this method to precisely meet the exact time and temperature requirements. And I can give you an example. The example for tomatoes um, is you're supposed to soak the tomato seeds in water that's at 100 degrees Fahrenheit for 10 minutes. And then you have to move the seed into water that's heated to 122 degrees Fahrenheit and soak them for 25 minutes. And then, you know, it's the same routine as what you do with the bleach water. You pour the seed through 
a sieve or a cheesecloth and then you rinse it under cool water for five minutes and then you dry it and store it as usual. But it's completely different for every single type of seed. So that's just the example for tomatoes. It's completely different from everything else. If you're unsure about whether or not those seeds are still viable after you treat them, then you can try it out with a small batch of seeds first and then do a germination test to make sure that they are still viable. Now, this is going to be a sort of worst case scenario situation, but I did want to mention it just in case you live in an area where you really do deal with a lot of diseases um, that can be passed on and uh, and you don't want to uh, to save those and propagate them again the next year. At that point, it really is a better idea for you just to buy new seed, fresh seed um, every single season. And that's why it's best to just start with healthy plants and avoid all that nonsense. So um, like I said, Friday's episode. So we'll talk about making sure that our seeds are dried properly, the proper conditions to store them in, what to store them in, um, how long they can be stored. And we're not going to, it's just not the seeds that you've pulled from your garden. It's also possible that maybe you overpurchased your seeds this year. <clears throat> that might be me. <laughs> I always buy too many seeds. Um, and we store large amounts and we buy large amounts of seeds. And so oftentimes we're talking, you know, a pound or five pounds of something at a time and, uh, and we may not use them all in one season. So it's okay to save those store-bought ones too. So we'll talk a little bit about how to do that and, uh, and how to do it in the best way. So in the meantime, if you have any questions, jump into the Just Grow Something Gardening Friends Facebook group. Uh, there's a bunch of us in there that can talk a little bit about seed saving. And in the meantime, I hope you have a fabulous week in the garden and I will talk to you again on Friday. You've just listened to another episode of the Just Grow Something podcast. Don't forget to download the episode after you've listened, rate and review us in your podcast player if that's an option, and follow us on Instagram at Just Grow Something Podcast. All these things help gardeners like you find me and hopefully join the Just Grow Something family. Don't forget to send in those gardening questions through a voice message at the link in the show notes or via email to grow at justgrowsomethingpodcast.com. Until next time, my gardening friends, keep on cultivating that dream garden and I will talk to you again soon.